Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 26th, 2018, and this is episode 2155 of the Survival Podcast. And it is Friday, 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 the Expert Council Q&A show. If you're from the Expert Council and you're listening, I'm going, Jack, where the hell's my response to you in uh, this week's show since you said you were uh, short on content? Well, I want to give a, a big thank you to the Expert Council today, not just for the work that they've done for what, like two years, three years now, uh, that we've had the council put together and grown it to what it is, but for their help this, uh, this last day. As of yesterday, about four o'clock in the afternoon, I had two, count them, two expert council uh, pieces. So I sent out an email to the whole council and said, help, help, I need help. I'm not going to have a freaking expert council show tomorrow. I'm going to have to do like four or five segments of myself and, 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 and fake it, you know. And almost every council member sent me something. So I've got enough content almost for next week already, expert council show. So if you are a council member and you don't hear your response today, you, I got it. Uh, it's great. I didn't have a single one I didn't love. But I don't want to do a show with, you know, 12 of them, and then next week I'm back in the same boat. On that note, though, we could use more questions for the expert council. So please get your questions in. Go by the website and check out the Meet the Expert Council page. I'll tell you some people I could use some questions for right now. Ben Falk, cold climate, eastern climate, permaculture questions, or questions in general, sustainable building questions, stuff like that. Ben has a lot of knowledge on all of that stuff. I could use questions for Darby Simpson, our full-time farmer. I could use questions for... Dan Omen, our law enforcement officer, prior service law enforcement officer on interactions with law enforcement or things going on in the world of law enforcement. Uh, I could use them for everybody, but definitely those people. I definitely could use some for Mike and Sue LaPreeze, the homeschool team. And I think even Doc Bones is out of questions. And remember, if you send a question in that's like a medical question and you don't want to hear from Doc Bones for whatever, you want to hear from Nurse Amy, make sure you say, hey, this was for Nurse Amy, Doc. Move your old ass out of the way and let the lady have the mic. All right. Anyway, what do we got up for you today? I got a little piece on mining bitcoins and combining them with aquaponics and expanding from there into innovative ways that people are starting to integrate mining technologies with other things being handled by crypto expert from Crypto Gulch, Ben Fitz. I've got managing images on your WordPress site with the saucy Nicole Awesome Sauce. I have preparing new garden beds with Nicholas Ferguson. I have an update on the Grass-Fed Life podcast, which is an amazing piece of work uh, that Diego Footer and Darby Simpson have been doing from, of course, Darby Simpson. I have just getting started with bees. Like, if you like, I don't know, they sting, and I don't know, I want them, but I'm not sure. And what, what do I do first with Michael Jordan? I've got more on mobile battery charging from Stephen Harris. And I have a, my segment today. I'm going to talk about something that I've heard a lot of people ask about uh, since I've announced that I am getting rid of the ducks. And, and actually, I think this week, as many as 40 of them are going to new homes. Um, how I'm going to handle the property uh, when I no longer have the ducks to do pest control. I no longer have the ducks out there basically mowing my lawn. Uh, and I don't have the ducks for fertility. What's going to be the management strategy on my homestead going forward? 
without a shit ton of animals out there dropping a shit ton of shit and eating up a shit ton of uh, insect pests and things like that. So we got all that going on today, and we'll get to it in just a minute. Before we do, let's take a look at the year in history. We are still in the year 96 where we were yesterday. If you remember yesterday, we talked about Domitian getting stabbed in the nads and then executed uh, by uh, an in internal uh, court conspiracy to get rid of him and a new emperor taken over. Uh, I've got a little segment today that doesn't have much to do with Domitian other than he is mentioned in it, and that is the Arch of Titus contributed by Southpaw Ben. This year, the Arch of Titus, an honorific arch constructed by Domitian, was completed after being commissioned in 82. The arch was to commemorate Titus's military victories, including uh, the 70 Siege of Jerusalem. Ironically, there are many theories around that Titus's death, including many suggesting that Domitian himself had him poisoned with sea hair. My take by Sao Paul Ben, when we see pictures of this arch, it is remarkably familiar looking. That is because it served as the model for many 16th century arches erected around Europe. Most, uh, foremost among these would be the Arch de Trombone in Paris, France. And I made an addition to Ben's uh, entry today, if you want to check out TSP Wiki page for the year 96, with a photo of this arch. It is phenomenal. It is amazing to think that this was built before we had trucks and trains. and I mean, this was 100% human labor and simple machines. It is phenomenal. And as beautiful as it is, it's obviously older than much of the dirt around you, right? The older than dirt, you've heard that. Um, and it's worn down. You can only really begin to wonder how amazingly beautiful a work of art it was when it was first finished. And one of the ways that Empire uses things like this, like it is an amazing creation, but it is also a way that governments and states control the population. They show you something like this that, yes, you the people built, but you built it with government. And it shows the power and the strength and the might of government and how could we function without the state. That's what the real message is. Putting a man on the moon is the same type of thing. It is an amazing and noble feat, but the message is you need government to do this. I'm always amazed when people say, well, we couldn't have this without government. We couldn't have that without government. We need you know, to pool resources. Well, then why don't the people that want it pool their resources and do it voluntarily? I don't know that you'd get a lot of Arch of Tituses because it is amazing and it is beautiful, but it doesn't really do anything. It doesn't really make anybody's life better. But I think the things that are actually important, since they're important, they just might get done. Again, history not repeating itself, but always rhyming. Next up, let's remind you guys real quick before we get into the show, that you can join the MSB and what's happening Monday. Big reminder, lifetime membership sale. 20 lifetime memberships go for sale. $300, become a lifetime member. The thing will open at 9 a.m. at thesurvivalpodcast.com. The post will be ready to go. It'll automatically post itself at 9 a.m. You'll be a payment button. You make payment. You fill out a form. I get it. I manually enter you. I convert your account if you're an existing member and cancel your auto renew if you have auto renew so you don't get billed ever again. And everybody else, if you just want to join, you can join whenever you want to, of course, at the regular price. Uh, but just wanted to remind you, yes, we will have that lifetime membership sale coming 
And uh, I do still have one more lifetime membership for somebody that wants to pay with cryptocurrency. Just send me an email with TSPC Crypto in the subject line. And uh, I'm going to go check the spam folder when I get done today because they always seem to end up in there. Something about the word crypto triggers the spam filter monster. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, before we get into your questions for the expert council, I have a special announcement from Nicole Sauce. Nicole, tell us about something that's going on this spring in Tennessee. Hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here. I wanted to share with you that we are doing a spring workshop this year. And this ain't your granddaddy's workshop, by the way. This is two and a half fun-filled and information-filled days on our homestead about an hour east of Nashville, Tennessee. Now, when I heard Jack wasn't doing his spring workshop, I thought, perfect. I have been talking with the Tennessee crew for about a year and a half about putting together something here in Tennessee because there are so many people who have come into the area. Now, I wanted to open this up beyond our Tennessee borders to TSP listeners because, sadly, you don't get to go to Nine Mile Farm this March. So in April, we have a workshop, April 26th through 28th. It starts at noon on the 26th and ends after dinner on the 28th. The workshop fee includes on-site camping. You can come in the night before and, of course, Since there will be adult beverages, you can stay Saturday night. We wouldn't want you driving home after that, right? So it's going to be two and a half fun-filled and information-filled days here at the Holler Homestead. If you want to sign up, it's over at livingfreeintennessee.com. Big red button. Cost for the workshop is 400 bucks, and that does include your food and camping. And I've got... A really extra special speaker this year. That's right. Jack Spierko himself is coming to talk to us about aquaponics. I've also got Chef Brett Corrieri queued up to do charcuterie. I've got David Oswald with Build Your Cold Smoker for $80 or less in an hour. We wouldn't want to skip cryptocurrency. So Kurt Duggar is going to come in and talk to us about cryptocurrency. We've got Patrick Rohrman coming and he's going to walk us through how to build a forge. Doesn't that sound fun? And he also wants to show us how to make a down and dirty knife. You would not show your mama fermentation basics from Carly Thompson, building uh, solar thermal air and water heaters from Sean Mills, turning your side hustle into a full-time gig from yours truly, gorilla gardening when you can't just go to Walmart. This one sounds really fun, by the way. It's about somebody who's moved on to a base where they do not have access um to off-base things, and it's on an island. And so he's just talking about how he's been building soil with whatever he can find. I'm also going to do something a little different. We're going to have something we call Project Accelerator. So if you show up and you're working on a side gig, your main business, whatever, you have an idea, we'll give you five minutes to present it, and then we open it up to the room to give you feedback on your idea, and hopefully they'll give you critique and help This is a way to accelerate your idea or your business beyond where it is now. Now, of course, we have a whole bunch of other stuff that might happen. There may be an advanced mead making course, and I'm probably going to take you on a tour of woe because I have a number of things I did before I knew permaculture existed on this homestead that I am now redoing. So I can show you, you know, what, what I had I known 10 years about permaculture, how much easier my life would be. Anyway, we'd love to see you there. It's going to be totally fun. And again, the, the dates are April 26th through 28th. That's a Thursday through Saturday. Hope to see you there. 
Sign up over at livingfreeintennessee.com. So absolutely, please consider coming on out. She mentioned you won't be able to come to Nine Mile Farm this spring. Dorothy and I have made a decision that one workshop a year is about all we got in us. Now, we may do the little one-day things like you know, show up Saturday morning and hang out Saturday afternoon and have some food. Uh, we've talked about even maybe doing one or two of those this year that are like, you know, we'll come do something, get something done. Uh, barbecue outside, and if people want to sleep over that night, they can just because that way you can drink and what have you. Uh, we may do that, but we're not doing the you know the three and a half day camp out, multiple speakers, panels uh, twice a year anymore. We we ran out of gas. It we, we you know the, the, you've heard me talk about getting rid of the ducks, and I'll talk more about that at the end of the day. We are arranging our lifestyles more conducive to the lifestyle we want rather than just trying to do everything. So one of those decisions is at least, you know, last year we did a spring one uh, and, and we decided that's we're going to just take off of that. That lets us, and I think, we, we, I think the last fall workshop we did was the best workshop we've ever done, and I don't think we ever did a bad one. And I think even though we had done a spring one, it was knowing that we only had to do one and that we would not do another one for another year that made us able to do that. And I think uh, I think our falls are going to be awesome. But if you want something to do in the spring and you want to hang out with me uh, and you want to hang out with my mysterious buddy David, who I'm always mentioning, uh, come on up there because we'll both be up there. And it's going to be a hell of a lot of fun. And... Uh, I got a lot to tell you about what's going on here when I have my, my uh, end segment today uh, about some stuff. But for now, let's go ahead and hear uh, a response from Ben Fitz on someone inquiring about, you know, function stacking, even though I thought Ben's not really a permaculture guy, so he doesn't really know that's what he's talking about, but it is, function stacking with cryptocurrency mining. Uh, ben, take it away. Hey, Jack, it's Ben Fitz with Crypto Gulch the Survival Podcast Expert Council member for cryptocurrency. And this time you asked me to check out something that was sent to us by a reader. It looks like it was sent to us by Jake. And it's a news article which combines aquaponics and cryptocurrency. Now, I'm not an aquaponics expert, um, so... I can talk only really about the cryptocurrency side of things, which is um, this article points to a Canadian man in Manitoba, Canada, and that's a place where it snows and is really cold, who has started heating his buildings and his fish farm and his aquaponics, um, where he also raises plants. I'm probably saying that wrong because I'm not the aquaponics expert, but you get the point. He's heating the building with his mining rigs. He's got 30 mining rigs, and he's got a 20,000-square-foot building. Now, 30 mining rigs isn't going to be enough to heat the whole building, but it will help, and you could heat certainly parts of the building, and you could offset your heating costs with uh, that. It's actually a really clever idea. I heard that a company called, I think it's Co, C-O-M-I-N-O, Comino. I heard that Comino is actually going to try to create a space heater. They're a Russian company, and they're going to actually try to create a space heater from um, a GPU mining rig. 
And so I think that technology kind of makes sense to see the switch where, you know, we've got devices for heating that are not used for anything else other than to generate heat. We also have devices like mining rigs that the output of that is a lot of heat. So could we combine the two so that the item that is generating the heat is also being used for other things? And um, it's a good idea. The only downside is what happens when it's not cold. What do you do with that heat? Um, now the guy in Manitoba, he's got a he's got his own building, so you know he could have it he could have it somehow routed where the heat that's coming off of the equipment is exhausted out, and you could exhaust it out into other rooms in the facility, or you know flip a panel, change a louver, change a change a switch, and basically redirect that hot air outside in the summertime. So that's a really cool idea. I've also heard of people doing this to um, heat hot water, for example, use the mining rigs to heat hot water. Um, so anything you can do like that, I, I mean, I think is, is a great idea. It's probably a little bit more engineering than I'm ready for myself. Um, but it, But it's definitely a clever idea. And, you know, more and more devices are going to also be designed to do cryptocurrency mining. Bitmain in China, they make Bitcoin miners. Um, they make a Wi-Fi router that now includes a Litecoin mining chip in it. So it's mining for Litecoin. It's already running all the time in your house. It's just using a little bit extra power than it was before. Now, it's not generating a lot of Litecoin, but it is generating Litecoin for you every day. And imagine if all of your devices, like your refrigerator, your Wi-Fi router, um, all these things that have to stay plugged in all the time, what if they all had a mining device in them? You know, so definitely there's some big changes coming. I'm sorry I can't really speak to the aquaponics um, of this article. Uh, for that reason, maybe this result ne or this response never uh, makes it to the air, or maybe Jack wants to amend this with an aquaponics expert to reply. I don't know. I do think it's a really cool idea, and um, it's especially useful in a place like Canada where it's cold a lot more often than it is in Texas. You know, he's going to need to run heat a lot longer than I am, and he's really going to get dual usage out of those mining rigs as heaters and as miners. Thank you, everybody. This is Ben Fitz with Crypto Gulch for the Survival Podcast Expert Council. There's a lot of potential for things like this. And one of the things that I'll add, um, if you can make heat, you can make cold. So, for instance, there's propane-powered refrigerators and freezers. So this heat problem that's a heat problem, if you get into the hot time of the year, we can actually use that heat. I'm not exactly sure how I would do it, but we could take and channel that heat and use heat exchange technology to take the same water, let's say if we were doing aquaponics, that we're heating in winter and actually chill it in summer. Maybe only a few degrees, but a few degrees is a lot when it comes to things like this. And then I've got links to the stuff Ben was talking about, the article about the aquaponics. Uh, the wireless router that mines Litecoin 
and uh, the, uh, the, 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 the mining space heater. This is, uh, all, I've got links to all that in the show notes because Ben was good enough to provide them. Okay, next, we just heard from Nicole about her workshop. Let's, we got a question for Nicole. And, of course, Nicole knows all about coffee, but she also knows all about small business. Uh, she knows all about local political activism, and she's also kind of like a tech genius when it comes to WordPress websites. This one's on WordPress websites, and it's managing your media for WordPress. Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here taking a question from Matthew about how to manage your image files on WordPress. This is from Matthew. How do you manage your images on WordPress backend? I have grown accustomed to the Windows File Explorer method of managing pictures. All my pictures I upload to WordPress seem to be restrained to one primary folder. What methods have you found to best manage your pictures? Thanks, Matt. Well, Matthew, the answer to your question is probably not what you're looking for. I am a weirdo, and I do really well just scanning through my thumbnail images on my sites, so I don't have to do anything special to manage them. I also don't have like 40,000 images on any of my websites, so that might be part of why I don't feel a compelling desire to have a very strict storage system there. I really like to use the built-in WordPress media file area, media folder. I'm also pretty disciplined on naming my files and making sure they're the right size because poorly handled images can grind your website to a screaming halt. Well-named files are easy to find in Media Library, even when there's lots of them, just by typing into the search bar, you know, pig or whatever it is that you're going to put up there. So um, I, I like to think about it like Gmail. It's the Gmail way of finding my stuff, right? On Gmail, you can just put a keyword in and it goes through everything. So the Media File Library can be your friend if you let it. And I guess the bigger question here is how are you using the images? How many images do you have? Uh, are you using it for e-commerce? Is it for a photo gallery? Re regardless, I do think I can offer some advice. I did reach out to a few friends on this one just because I'm pretty happy with my WordPress media library as it is. And the first question I asked was the usual question I ask on WordPress. Is there a plugin for that? And I went on a little search and I found both alarming plugins and one that might work for you. <clears throat> it, it creates a photo gallery from your media library, keeping your photos in the right folder structure on WordPress and using tags to help organize the images into air quote folders. Uh, it, it's probably not going to look the same as your computer, but it sounds a little better than what's happening for you now. And this means it's also still using WordPress's built-in data structure to do similar something similar to what you want, which is a good thing uh, because if you don't stay within the parameters of the WordPress database, there are all sorts of things that can go wrong. And here's, before I go into the plugin, these are my words of caution when you're going down the path of how do I make WordPress work the way WordPress isn't built to work. Um, It can really mess up your links to put images somewhere other than the media folder because that's what the WordPress database, that's where it expects them to be. And so that means you can then have problems with updates later when you make changes or your theme updates and those things are not in the right place. Or if you're smart and have decided to go from HTTP to HTTPS because you know you should, Uh, and your folders are all messed up uh, from the WordPress database structure standpoint, it may completely break things. So 
first word of caution. Um, the other word of caution is, and, and I don't know if you're doing this, but I'm saying this for everybody, storing raw slash straight from your camera files or photographs on your web server can really slow down your site, even if they're not linked up there. It can fill up all of your hosting space, crash your server, and if you have too many of them that are too big, because usually they come off your camera bigger than you want them, it can be a big problem. Images really should be named, sized, and optimized for your website, so you can keep your page load times decent, so that when people come to your site, it loads, they see something, and they want to go further, right? Dropbox, Google Drive, and other services like that are really good at handling file storage if that's what you need and you want a cloud-based storage option instead of your hard drive, which is not a bad idea because, well, having a backup is always good, right? And having two backups is even better. So once you use a plugin for image management, it can cause problems later. So be real careful going down this road. If you choose to use a plugin, this is one of those times when it really makes sense to use a paid one. Uh, that way you get access to the tech support team so that if you do have, from the cl- plugin creator, right? So if you do have problems later, they will actually answer your question. As I said, I found a plugin you might want to try out. It's called Media Library Folders for WordPress. I've dropped the link over to Jack. And if you decide you want to go down the road, be open to the fact that it's still going to be a little different than Windows local file storage systems like the Windows Explorer. Uh, Make sure you buy the pro version. Think about how tagging works for blog posts. This is similar to how that plugin is going to organize your files, right? So like folder, subfolder, subfolder, subfolder probably isn't in the cards here. I haven't actually installed the plugin and played with it. I've just looked at the documentation. So you'll want to integrate keywords into your image file names and descriptions so that, so that if the folder structure this isn't as robust as you need. You can type, you know, ladybug and your ladybugs come up. Having images with a name on your camera give, uh, that, that your camera assigns does kind of suck. So like DCS134521.jpg versus dog collar 600 by 300 JPG. Those are the two differences, right? Uh, with, with the second file name, I know how many pixels it is wide by high it is, and I know that it's a dog collar. Um, make sure you're optimizing image sizes for your website before uploading them and not depending on WordPress to resize it to fit. That's how you get blurry photos on your site. And, um, for example, in e-commerce, the best image dimensions are built into the theme settings in WooCommerce, so you can go look. Now, I can tell you this. I've gone through all sorts of hijinks on WooCommerce over that, so that's it's written in there, but it's not always the case. Sometimes you have to, because your theme settings can override the WooCommerce cart settings. So you do have to figure out what size is it 100 by 100? Is it 500 by 500? You know, like those things are things you'll want to find out about your website and write down. And check compatibility with your other plugins if you're going to go with this plugin. I had one just last week that I wanted to use for coffee subscriptions, and I added it to my WooCommerce. It's a plugin for the WooCommerce cart. Got it installed, got it set up, gave it a test, and all of my payment gateways stopped working except for PayPal, which isn't going to work for me because Stripe and Coin Payments are the two that my 
my buyers use the most. Some of them do use PayPal. That's why I have it there. But most of them use Stripe or coin payments. And so I quickly got that off there. I was like, well, I'd rather be paid for coffee than have this subscription plugin that's making people maybe not want to buy my coffee. So know that when you go down a plug-in road like this, it may break other things, even if you've checked the compatibility and be ready to take it off again. And with that in mind, you want to back up your site, do a full backup before you install it. That can help you restore it back to where it was before you started if something goes horribly wrong. And even in the best of cases, even with the most research you've done, something can always go horribly wrong, right? So another solution you might want to consider, it's not my favorite, is to use the image photo gallery functionality in Facebook to organize your photos into albums and then use a plugin to pull those into your gallery page. This effectively lets you put storage of the files on Facebook, and then whenever you update Facebook, it automatically updates your website. This is not my favorite one, though, because you're dependent on Facebook as a third-party host, and every time they decide to censor one of your photos, it it's going to break on your site, too. So I know some people are just like so not wanting to learn the back end of WordPress that they prefer to do something like use Facebook to manage their photos. And so I'm just throwing that out there as an idea. Again, not my favorite one. Okay, Matthew, I hope that helped. And Jack, I'll uh, email the link to this in the in the email so you can put it up there. TSP, if you want to learn more about me, you can find me over at livingfreeintennessee.com. Yeah, Nicole and I are pretty much in, in agreement, I think, on the way we handle it. I just use the general WordPress management system. And what I do when I look at a picture, I think to myself, what is the first word that comes to my mind when I look at that picture? First thing is a picture of a pig. I just make sure pig's in the title. And that way, when I like, if I'm going to do a post and I need to see if do I have a picture that I could use for this post, instead of finding a new picture, taking a new picture, adding a new picture, and I stick in pig, it will show up all the posts with pig in it. And that's by giving your files, you know, relevant names. Um, on resizing your photos and things like that, there's a lot of ways to do that. I use Coral Coral Photoshop which is like a light version of, uh, of, of, of uh, Coral Paint. I don't know what the hell it's called. It's a Coral uh, software product. Definitely a step up from Microsoft Paint. It does just about anything Photoshop would do, but I don't know how to use Photoshop, and I think Coral's a little bit easier. So that's what I use. But if you didn't have something and you wanted to have resized images, just get a Flickr account and upload all your photos to Flickr And you can get on over there, and you'll see that every photo you upload has from little bitty ones all the way up to great big ones, and you can pull them out of there and, again, rename them when you upload them to WordPress. Someone did get said there, you, she was talking about, like, if you have, a, like, a shopping cart and a lot of products and stuff like that, if you have, a like, a, uh, uh, an e-commerce site with, you know, thousands of items uh, that come out of, like, a, a SQL database, and each one has images or multiple images, and you... I don't think that's a WordPress site. I'm just going to say there are things that I think for the average website owner, WordPress is the best system in the world. But I think there are places where you get, you know, maybe some off-the-shelf coding and some custom coding together, and you go to a different solution, like an ASP solution or something like that. Just putting that out there. Next, I have a question for Nick Ferguson on garden bed preparation. Nick, take it away. 
Nick Ferguson here from HomegrownLiberty.com, where my goal is to help you avoid problems in learning how to build permaculture systems and regular old homesteading, too. I like to try out things and show you what works for me and what's a complete failure. So if you're interested in saving money and especially saving time, check out what we're doing over at Homegrown Liberty Community and learn from my mistakes as well as my experience. All right, Dylan, thanks for the question. And it's a timely one, seeing as how I'm in the process of building a completely new garden space. So the process you described in your email is closer to what I like to do for more of a broad acre soil enrichment right before sheet mulching. And that's what we did at Jack's place to help build soil and to make a lower pH zone for root development above that limestone slab that sits a couple inches below his soil surface that Jack calls his dirt. Well, while that's not a bad method for starting a new garden space, not exactly what I just prescribe for gardening. So for my raised beds this year, I'll be essentially doing what I describe in episode 25 of my podcast titled Expanding Your Garden. So if you want to find that real easy, just get on Google and type in Homegrown Liberty Expanding Your Garden, and it'll probably be the first thing that pops up. But it's episode 25 And if you follow those directions, you should be well on your way to having some great soil. With that said, I'm going to be building some of my raised beds with wooden sides and set level and off contour so I can create a more flat terraced garden space. And the main reasons for this departure from my earlier curving contour-based garden beds are twofold. I want to build raised beds with hardware attachment options so I can standardize on sizing for things like row covers, season extension, anything that I want to attach to the garden bed or use to contain or exclude can all be sized exactly the same. So I'm setting up beds on a standard unit of four foot wide by eight foot long. So it'll either be an eight foot long bed or a 16 foot long bed. It's not going to be a 10 foot long bed. And this way I can construct chicken tractors to work only a small section of a garden bed. Or I can place a similarly sized hoop structure and have a modular and standardized growing space. The other major factor is, well, my wife likes those straight lines. She wants it to be neat and ordered. And these garden beds are going to be really close to the house. So if someone pulls up in the driveway, they're going to see the garden. And if it looks like a mess, they're going to see it. And she doesn't want it to look messy. So, like I always say, happy wife, happy life. So, guess what? I'm making straight line garden beds to make my wife happy and also to make my life easier when it comes to modular gardening attachments for the raised beds. I'll go into my raised garden prep ideas briefly here, but if you want a write-up that's more thorough, go check out episodes 25 and also episode 46. I talk about building soil, and this kind of gardening method in both of those. So basically all I do is this. If you have established turf or grasses, there's a couple ways to deal with it. The best, in my opinion, is to solarize with clear plastic to kill the grass roots and weed seeds. And second best would be to flip the turf upside down and then proceed. Or you could lay down a couple layers of wet, thoroughly wet cardboard as a weed barrier Now, a side note, if you go with the cardboard option, you'll need to either import more compost to make a deeper layer of growing space above the cardboard, or you'll need to expose the cardboard and plant your transplants into soil under the cardboard. So cut a little X in the cardboard, flip up the little flaps, dig a little hole, put the transplant in there in the actual soil 
because you're not going to build a whole heck of a lot of soil on top of that cardboard unless you have just an insane amount of worms and they just turn it into nothing really quickly. So the least desirable option is to treat the whole area with some kind of herbicide, preferably a concentrated vinegar solution over some synthetic herbicide. And I think it'd probably be best to spend the whole year solarizing and building soil instead of using synthetic herbicides. So once those grasses are dealt with, then just proceed with the first step, which is break up the soil in the space where you want the beds. And then I would remove the top layer of soil where the footpaths will be, and I put that good soil onto the new garden space. So no sense in putting mulch or whatever on good topsoil, if you have good topsoil. You know, some people don't, but you might have two or three or four inches of really good black stuff that you can just cut and flip over on top of the new garden bed and double the amount of that good soil that you would have had otherwise. Then you just want to flatten and break up the clumps to make a more uniform and flat space. And then add your soil amendments. I like to use manure or compost. Manure, about an inch thick, give or take. Compost, really as much as you want and can afford to put on. Um, but I'd say at least an inch thick. You can use rabbit manure. I'll, I'll list these in kind of the order of the best to worst. Rabbit manure and then goat sheep and llama manure are all kind of on par with each other. All fantastic manure sources. Then it would be cow. And then the last two would be horse and poultry or swine. And those last three would need to be composted with a hot compost process. Mostly because they're going to be high in nitrates, nitrites and ammonia, and you want to lock that up in the humic process. I won't get super deep into that. Um, and the horse would be mostly because you want to process any of the wormers or uh, the weed seeds that are going to be present in the horse manure and break that down, try and decompose as much of those chemical compounds and, of course, kill those weed seeds. And then uh, another one of the soil amendments that I strongly suggest is forest floor soil with that leaf mold and rotten twigs and limbs, a quarter inch to an inch thick. That just gives a nice kind of native bacterial and fungal inoculant into your garden beds. You know, if you're turning this from a lawn into a garden space, then you might not have a whole nice diverse array of nutrients and macro um, life in there, you know, little decomposers and stuff that you really want in there. And adding that really, in my in my experience, really helps kickstart a good, healthy soil ecosystem. You definitely want to do that from somewhere that it's, you know, a healthy ecosystem. There's good life grown there. And then the following are optional but recommended and should be a light dusting application, not thick or in large amounts. You don't need to go an inch thick. Uh, seed meal. No more than a quarter of an inch thick or so. Just kind of just, just covering what you already have on the ground. Um, and that would be ground or cracked seeds of some kind. So like cotton seed meal, corn meal, flour, roasted soybean meal, chicken laying pellets, even rabbit pellets, alfalfa pellets. I know those last two aren't necessarily just seed meal, but most spoiled animal feed will work well. Make sure it's all ground up. Do not include whole seed feed. Wheats and oats especially will sprout, and there'll be a huge pain in the rear. Earthworms and castings would be a great addition. Most of the time, the earthworms that you're going to get with the castings are going to be 
red wigglers, some kind of a manure earthworm. They only like really high nitrogen manure environments, but if you're using manure, then they might really like it there and help process that manure into just more earthworm castings for you between building the bed and planting it. Uh, another thing would would be bone meal. You can use azomite or other rock dust, you know, uh, soft rock phosphate if you need phosphorus. So all those things are great. Don't go crazy with them. Just a little bit goes a long way. And then you just water this all in well and then top it all off with mulch. And I would go with at least two inches. You can go up to eight inches or even more. It just depends on how soon you're wanting to plant into this. If this is something you're going to plant into into a year, then go a foot deep if you can with the mulch. It'll break down. It'll make great soil there. If not, just put two inches of mulch on there. Wood chips, uh, shredded hardwood leaves are both fantastic. Those are two of my favorites. And then, man, after all that work, enjoy a cold, refreshing beverage of your choice. And that's about it. I hope that helps you, man. And, of course, I hope it helps all you listeners who've been bitten by the gardening bug. It's coming up on gardening season, so be looking for more content on gardening coming out from me. I'm Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com. You can check out my website for tons of great info on gardening, homesteading, and permaculture topics. And check out my Patreon feed over at Patreon.com forward slash HomegrownLiberty. Do good thing. All right, next, let's get an update from Darby Simpson on the work he's been doing with Diego Footer, who brought us Permaculture Voices with a podcast called The Grass-Fed Life. Darby, take it away. Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson calling in this week, not to answer a question, but to actually give you an update on a really exciting project that I've been working on uh, for the past, well, really almost the past year. Um, as many of you know, a couple of years ago, I started doing a weekly podcast called Grass Fed Life with my good friend Diego Footer, and to date we've produced over 85 podcasts that have to do with everything uh, pasture-based livestock oriented for profitability. Uh, this is a podcast where we discuss how to run a for-profit farm. Uh, on pasture, make money, make good money, uh, whether that be a, you know, a side hustle or if you want it to be your main source of income for your family. Um, anything to do with pasture, poultry, pork and beef, we cover it. Marketing, sales, analysis, how-to information. We've taken it on on this podcast and it's, it's been a, a really fun project to work with Diego on. Uh, Diego Footer is, uh, simply fabulous at, uh, you know, organizing the podcast, asking great questions, and we, we've built um, a really nice library of podcasts for people to listen to. And as a result, we've actually got a new home that I wanted to make you aware of for the podcast, as well as a bunch of other free materials. You can actually go out to our new website, that is grassfedlife.co. Again, that's grassfedlife.co. And you can listen to the podcast directly on that website. Uh, if you haven't listened before, I'd encourage you to go back to um, episode 81, uh, which is the first one that came out this year. Listen to the most four uh, recent four episodes. Um, really proud of, of these most recent episodes that have come out. There's a lot of good stuff in there, I think. Um, I think anyone that's uh, new to the podcast would be a great jumping on point. We've also got blog articles out there. 
before much longer, we'll have some additional free resources, uh, including my recommended tools list, you know, things I use on our farm to pr produce everything we raise here efficiently and effectively. Uh, there'll be some uh, free videos out there, free downloadable guides, just all kinds of free information to help anyone who's interested in making the journey that I've made, transitioning from, you know, corporate America to being self-employed on a farm. There are tools there to help you learn how to do that, do it more efficiently, and have success. And uh, again, everything on that website is free. Now, right along with that, an another project that Diego and I have been working on. Um, over the past year and a half, we've actually run an in-person workshop three times. We've put over a hundred people, uh, through this in-person workshop that we've done at my farm. It's a, a three-day intensive workshop, a, a complete A to Z, how to go start a farm for profit. We call it the Farm Business Essentials. Again, we've, we've been doing that in person. We have taken all the feedback from that course. We have edited it. We've modified it, added to it, tweaked it, revised it, and we finally have a complete course that we feel really good about. And the big thing I wanted to let everyone know about is that course has been filmed and it will be available online uh, starting in the middle of February. Um, somewhere around February 19th, we'll have a soft launch There'll be more information coming out on that soon. Um, in the interim, I, I would say listen to the podcast. We'll, we'll have a, a whole podcast dedicated to the launch of that online course. And that that's going to be a massive amount of information. This course is, there's 22 modules. It's probably going to be, by the time it's all said and done, somewhere between 20 and 25 hours of recorded, streamable video that you can watch. There's six hours of on-farm video on my farm watching me do everything I do here <clears throat> as well as selling product at the farmer's market. I actually filmed the video at the farmer's market. Um, I show all of our equipment, all the tools, all the infrastructure, all the animals, all the how-to stuff coupled together with a lot of modules on sales and marketing, how to choose an enterprise, uh, time management, holistic context, branding, uh, website design, social media for your farm. Again, we cover everything in this online course. And I, it's something I'm really proud of. Um, any of you that have listened to me for any length of time know that I just love to teach and I love to share. And farming is really damn hard. And starting a new business is really damn hard. And when you combine the two together, it's really easy to blow yourself up. Very few farms last more than about three years um, because there are just so many huge uh, landmines that you can hit that will blow you out of the water before you even really get started and even get going. Uh, anybody who's ever attempted to start a farm is shaking their head <laughs> because they know how difficult it is. And there, there's two things I'm about. I, I'm, I'm really about real food, healing the land, raising sustainable, responsible, great tasting, nutritionally dense meat. And I'm also teaching about teaching others how to do that also 
but teaching them in a way so they don't blow up themselves, blow up them, blow up their families, uh, you know, blow up their lives because it doesn't do us any good to go out and start a farm and blow ourselves up. Uh, you'd be better off to have never gone and, and done that. So uh, genuinely, this course is designed to help someone again with everything from A to Z and to also help them avoid these big type A mistakes, these big pitfalls that will, you know, stop you dead in your tracks before you really ever, you know, get things off the ground and, and get running. So again, there'll be more information coming out on that soon. Again, in the interim, check out the grassfedlife.co website for all these free resources. Um, that, that page is up. It's functional. We've still got a whole lot more to add to it, but it's out there and I want to encourage people to go there. And again, be listening for a podcast, uh, some, somewhere in the middle of February, if you're interested in this, even just in learning more, uh, and there's, there's going to be some free information, uh, you know, that, that comes along uh, with this. You, you can kind of check things out, test it out, see what you think, but be listening for a podcast that Diego and I will have out, uh, on grass fed life. Uh, which you can also listen to in iTunes or, or through other devices, um, uh, somewhere in the middle of February where we'll announce all the ins and outs and what all is going to be included in that. There's a ton of information included in this. It's, it's lifetime access. It's, it's a one-time, um, you know, cost to buy the course. There's no ongoing fees. Uh, it, it will be complete with, with downloadable resources and guides and spreadsheets. Uh, there'll also be some periodic webinars personally with myself and Diego so that people can get direct questions answered. Uh, and there'll be some other benefits as well. But, um, uh, anyway, just wanted to say thanks, uh, to everybody in this community for sending in, you know, questions for me over the years. Uh, been part of the TSP community going back to 2011. Jack, it's kind of hard to believe that, isn't it? Going back, uh, seven years now, you and I. Uh, but just want to say thanks for all the questions that you guys have sent in. Uh, I've met so many great people through the TSP community and just wanted to take a few minutes and kind of give you an update on this, this really, you know, heartfelt project that I've been pouring myself into for the last year and a half, two years. Um, something that I'm really proud of and, and happy to announce and happy to be able to share it with those of you who are interested in making money with a farm, regardless of the size and regardless of if it's part-time or full-time. Um, just happy to be able to share these resources with you because I really want to see people succeed. That's, that's what makes me tick. Teaching people and helping them succeed really puts a smile on my face. It's why I love coming on to this show and answering questions for you guys to help you out. Hopefully you get a lot out of it. Please feel free to send in some questions for me. Um, I, I'm wide open right now. really don't have anything to backlog. So shoot some questions in. If, you, if you've got specific questions, uh, send them over to Jack. He'll, he'll get them to me and I'll be happy to answer those for you as we head into the new year. And hopefully, hopefully you're planning out your farming season. That's what our, uh, one of our upcoming podcasts is going to be on is planning out your farming season now in January and getting everything all laid out. So you're not running around stressing, uh, trying to do that, you know, when everything hits the ground in the spring. So again, check out grassfedlife.co. Be listening for more on the launch of the farm business essentials online course in the near future. As always, everyone have a great weekend. Thanks for listening and take care. Good stuff from Darby. Remember we could definitely use some questions for him. 
next I have a piece from Michael Jordan on, you know, becoming a beekeeper, getting started at, from, from kind of ground zero, understanding hives and things like that. This is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company, taking your questions on beekeeping, apiary management, and the making of mead. So I've got a great question from Craig in California. Uh, Michael, what kind of hive do you recommend for a newbie? Details I'm considering and getting into beekeeping. And while researching, I came up with the Flow Hive with a pore spout that claims to gather, uh, be gentler on bees and on the keeper. And he included the link. I'm finding my passion is leaning towards non-honey native bees and wasps, but having trouble finding information about those pursuits. Any help you can provide is beneficial. I currently live in California, but I'm moving soon to northern Missouri. Thanks from Craig in California. What kind of beehives for a new beginner? Well, prior to keeping bees, humans robbed colonies and often destroyed the hive while gathering prized gold nectar that we all love. Among the types of bees and the hives that are commonly used today is the Langstroth hive. It is the most common and the most used. It makes it easy to repair, to find parts, and it works pretty much with any style of that model. In the 1800s, the father of modern beekeeping, Reverend Lorenzo Langstroth, put an easy home for bees to use and for the beekeeper. This is the easiest beehive to use. Most education, even through entomology, clubs, hobbies, and commercial beekeeping use this. It is the most replicated and the simplest format to use for education. The hive stand, which is the bottom part of the hive, angles the board forward so the bees and water have easy access in and out, allowing water to drain out. Um, you can be simple by using cinder blocks to set up or getting really elaborate by using hive stands made by Freedom Family Farms. Freedom Family Farms makes great beehive stands. Then they come with a bottom board. And it's just usually uh, screened or a hard board. It's to keep control of varroa mites as well as air temperature. Has an entrance reducer, which is a small piece of wood for weak hives to become stronger and deter stuff like wasps and mice from going in, but can be removed for heavy colony introduction for nectar flow. You could get a slotted rack, which is an optional piece, which gives extra ventilation between the incense bottom board and from the brood itself. A deep super or two supers with frames and foundation. Really easy to move and manage for inspections. Easy to maintain and work with. Don't have to worry about dropping them or turning them a certain way. Hold a fair amount of bees. Some brood boxes hold anywhere from 7 to 10 frames, depending on what style of beekeeping is used. You get a queen excluder. It's a flat metal rack with holes in it. Allows worker bees to go through, but eliminates queens to go through. Preventing brood laying in honey or separation of queens during splits. Of course, the honey super. Many different types, many different styles. Even one that you're mentioning, the flow hive. The flow hive is not a beehive. It is a honey box, just like the mason jar box or spinner box or Ross rounds 
or free flow. Many different types of honey box out there that go above the queen excluder. We have the inner cover, which uh, helps traps moisture, includes the bees from building bird comb, helps insulation, and of course the outer cover. And there's many different styles of types. You can get copper for, you know, patining, or you can use uh, a quilting box with a feeder, or even feeding upper lids. I mean, the simple, basic applications are easy for this type of hive. I think it's the easiest one for people to get into. You were talking about other things and not knowing where to look up information on, you know, like solitary bees. Solitary bees would be like the mason bee or the leafcutter bee, bumblebee. They're a hiveless solitary bee. Bumblebees, masonary, leafcutter bees are gentle, easy to raise among all the pollinators. Most people are familiar with the honeybee. The major difference between these incredible insects and honeybees are they have no hive to defend. They're gentle and non-aggressive. They pollinate to 100 times more effectively than the honeybees. They do not build a hive or make honey. Instead, they raise their young in a nest with holes. They're easy to raise. Anyone can require less maintenance than honeybees, not to mention they are fun for kids and adults. They do not include uh, anaphylactic shock, and it's rarely that they ever sting. Um, if you'd like to know more about mason bees, you can look up crownbees.com. They have an introduction of mason bees. Uh, leafcutter bees are a black bee with a white silvery hairs on the top of their abdomen. Uh, alfalfa leather cutter bees are introduced to the United States and from Asia in the 1930s and have been major commercial pollinators, especially in alfalfa crops. The leafcutter bee is managed intensely, and it's used mostly in the western United States. And production of bees for multi-dollar use is in the United States and Canada for pollination. And has been imported from here to Canada and even to Russia for its pollination crop abilities. If you'd like to know more about uh, leafcutter bees, you can look at wattsbees.com. That's W-A-T-T-S-B-E-E-S.com. And you can look up leafcutter bees. The bumblebee is probably the easiest one to find in trap. Most people see them all the time. Big furry guy with an orange stripe or black stripe on their back, buzzing around, very slow, very awkward, right? But very great for pollination for short trips. Mostly kept in insulation from outside of a house and stuffed in a shoe box. It's the simplest and easiest bee to trap and maintain. Hopefully that they winterize enough colony to come back next year. For population growth, one of the easiest bee to maintain. So when it comes to beekeeping and you're looking for general information on how to get started and what hives are the best for you, remember, take the BDC course, the Systems of Beekeeping from Perma Ethos, where it goes over the laws, can you get stung, the history, and some different aspects. There are many programs that are coming out by them, but this will help you to kind of get your introduction going and part of that program shows top bar highs, weir highs, Langstroth highs. You can kind of see a differential. And we even talk about some highs that are uncommon, such as like the Sun High, Slovak Hives, Perone. These are all different types of highs with many different systems. But the most basic beginner looks into mason bees for non-honey and massive pollination. Or they look for the Langstroth hive using a really docile bee such as an Italian bee. 
Hey, I'm Michael Jordan with a bee-friendly company out of Cheyenne, Wyoming. Hey, buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy it from a small industry, because we all start someplace, and help your fellow man, because one day you're going to need help too. Michael is just a huge wealth of information. Next up, I have another uh, huge wealth of information, Mr. Stephen Harris, probably one of the most popular uh, council members and guests of all time on TSP, to discuss charging batteries from your vehicle yet again in a different twist. Steve, take it away. Hi, this is Steve Harris from the Expert Panel here to answer your question. I got one here from Kenny. I tried to find an, oh, my God, they killed Kenny MP3 file, but it was actually impossible for me to try to find one. Hold on there. It won't be as good as if uh, Steve had had the file to work with and inserted it where he wanted to, but uh, I think I can make that happen for you. <laughs> oh, my God, they killed Kenny. And now back to Stephen Harris, who I guess I'm going to have to teach how to grab audio files off of YouTube. So anyways, Kenny says, when charging a 12-volt deep cycle battery from a 1998 Chrysler Town & Country LXI minivan made at the Jefferson North Assembly Plant with 18-inch rims, wood on the bottom, green on the top, and a Trump bumper sticker, and a 1 and 3 8 inch ball on the trailer hitch. Um, honestly, I, I don't know why people tell me so much stuff about their vehicle. You know, it's enough, guys, just to say it's a Chrysler minivan. You don't have to tell me all the details. I added a few of my own, but there were quite a few there from him. Uh, anyways, um, is it, would it be better to use a Whistler 800-watt inverter? Attached to the idling van's battery to plug in a Schumacher 210 or 50 charger and hook up to the 31M225. That's probably a group 31 battery. It sure as heck isn't 225 ampere hours. It's about a hundred. Uh, deep cycle battery or simply would it be better just to clamp on jumper cables from the battery of the minivan? to the battery I want to charge. The latter seems much simpler, but perhaps there are nuances to the process you could educate us on. Oh, I guarantee you. <laughs> I will educate everyone, if you want. Anyways, he says, thank you for my eight years of education, enlightenment, and entertainment with TSP. And that's with Jack. I haven't been on TSP that long. And I'm really enjoying the Runaway Bug Out Trailer series first Tuesday of the month. Thank you, Kenny. Oh, uh, when I did the whole thing about the minivan, that's where I was going to insert the, oh, my God, they killed Kenny audio, but I didn't get a chance. So, first of all, when your vehicle is at idle, you are only really going to be producing about a good 400 watts. So your 800-watt inverter will... It will put out 400 watts just fine. Your Schumacher 2 slash 10 slash 50, that is not a 50 amp battery charger. That is a 2 amp or 10 amp Schumacher charger, and it's a 50 amp engine start. People say, I got the 100 amp Schumacher battery charger. No such thing. Well, it says 100. That's the engine start. Oh, 
you know, it's really a 30 amp charger. And I am currently, I, the only reason I told you guys to buy Schlumacher chargers wasn't because I loved them. It's because at the time I did the battery bank video, they were the only chargers on the market, especially at any price. You know, at a good price. Either it was the no-co genius chargers, but they're 250 bucks for a 26.3 amp charger. It's absolutely ridiculous. They marked the price up because it's genius. I don't know. So anyways, I'm using the Potex right now, P-O-T-E-K. However, my Potex, uh, which is a, um, 40 amp, which I like a lot. It's a very good price. It just died. I just went to use it and it's like, it wouldn't turn on. So I gotta call the company and see like how well they're gonna treat me as a customer before I say Harris approved, but that's what I'm currently using right now from Amazon. Don't forget to use T-Spaz. And, uh, when it was working, I loved it a lot. It's great charger. Tells me the amps. That's what I wanna really know. I want to know how many amps are flowing into the battery. I could care that percentage number. You know, your battery's at 80%. Complete bull crap. Worthless, good for nothing number. There's no way it can know it's at 80%. There's no way it can tell. The way to tell a battery is at a certain percentage by voltage is actually a very complex thing that takes at least four hours. Uh, so forget that. So anyways, he wants to basically put, uh, know the difference about between putting an inverter on his car, his minivan, town and country LXI minivan. And he wants to clamp on the 800-watt inverter, plug in an extension cord, run it into his house, go to a battery charger that's intelligent of some type, Potex, Schlumacher, Black & Decker, you name it, and then clamp that onto his battery and charge the battery that way. Would that be smart? Yeah, that'd be smart. So if you had a 30-amp charger, 30 times 12, 360 minus some losses and everything, 400, 450 watts of draw, yeah, that would work. That's a really good way. If you can't move your battery to your car, it is a very good way to charge your battery. I do remember the car is at idle and it's going to have to stay idling to in order to make the power to go to the inverter, to go through the cable, to go into the house to charge your battery. It works. It's good. It's in my videos. It's in the battery bank video and it is in the uh, storing and generating emergency home power video, both of which are at energy1234.com, and there is a 25% off sale going right now for only a couple days, so get over there. And if you're on my email list, there's a 30% off, because it pays to be on Steve's email list, just like it pays to be on Jack's email list and an MSP member. Uh, sign up on my email list at steven1234.com where all my stuff is. So the idea is, sorry, I'm getting, to, I'm getting, uh, sidetracked here. Oh my god, they killed Kenny! Where'd that come from? Anyways, um, yeah, smart idea to use the inverter to do that. Now, taking your marine battery out to your car, your pickup truck, your monster truck, your smart car, which is really a dumb car, your anything, and placing it on the ground 
clamping on some jumper cables, clamping it onto your vehicle when the, with the vehicle running, and charging brute force through the cables off the alternator uh, and, car, and battery of the car is a fabulous, absolutely simplistic, elegant, wonderful thing for you to do. It'll probably even charge your battery quicker than the inverter through cable to 30 or 40 amp charger will. Really, lead acid batteries are gluttons for punishment. You can hook it up and it's almost dead and there can be like 60, 80 amps going through those cables in that battery and the battery in a low state of charge is going, come on, come on, I love it, I love it, give me more, give me more, give me more. As the battery starts to become more full, it will naturally slow down the charging rate. It can only take so much current. It'll slow down to 40, then 30, then 20, then 10, then 5 amps. And uh, it, it's just, if you're doing charging with the inverter method, you, no matter what, you got to have a set of jumper cables. I don't care if they're cheap of $15, cheap pair of jumper cables from Walmart, only 8 feet long, good enough to go from your battery to the ground to the, to the battery, or put the battery underneath the hood and and then, you know, jumper it to your other battery. I don't care. you got to have a set of jumper cables to do this because you got to have the two is one, one is none. It is so simple. It is so elegant. It works absolutely great. I just had a guy write to me. He said, Steve, you know, what should I do for batteries from my trailer? And uh, we talked about putting six golf cart batteries in the back of his pickup truck. And, you know, charging those off of a 60-amp charger as he's driving, and then he plugs his RV, you just plug it into the shore power of the RV with your inverter uh, from the back of the pickup truck, and he powers his trailer. And we're talking about the merits of that, but I said, hey, look, I still want you to have two 100-ampere-hour regular 12-volt batteries in your trailer, so you got two is one, one is none, because when the car drives away, you now have no power in your trailer, and you at least want some lights and some fans and a few things. He goes, well, how about how am I going to charge those? I said, oh, you just turn the car around, put it near the front of the trailer where the battery is, put the jumper cables in there, turn on the truck, and charge them that way. He's like, wow, that's great, that's simple, that's easy, I love it, I'll do it. You know, keep it simple, stupid. There is, you know, when do, batteries are gluttons for punishment, they'll take the abuse. Uh, they just don't like being discharged all the way down. They don't like being discharged at all, but especially all the way down. But I mean, if it's a marine battery and you have to discharge it all the way down, go ahead and do it. You can do it like 200 times. Starting battery, you can do it like 10 times before the battery is literally dead, dead, dead. Oh my God, they killed Kenny! No, the battery's name wasn't Kenny. Anyways, um, do it. Yeah, I, I like it. That's a very good idea. It's a very good question. I'm glad you wrote it in. And, uh, yes, I've been up too late. Yes, I've had too much Mountain Dew. Uh, diet Mountain Dew, no sugar. And, um, yes, I'm trying to make a little attempt at humor in my TSP thing which I rarely do, so if it was funny, great. If it wasn't, excuse me, I'll go back to my normal, serious self next week. So thank you, guys. Check out my website. I gave it to you, stephen1234.com, and I am... I can't tell you really how much I'm looking forward. I am personally looking forward to doing Bug Out Trailer Show number three with Jack in the first Tuesday of February. I mean, this is like... 
brain candy for me, okay? Me and Jack going at it, I love it. You gotta tune into it. It's really some of the best stuff I've ever done. And I'm putting a lot of back work into the questions and formatting them and putting them in the right order and everything. So you got a really good presentation to, I mean, I'm not, I'm not aware. It's the quality that I'm after. The quality of the question and the quality of the answers. I'm really putting a lot of effort into that so you guys get a heck of a show. See ya. Bye. All right, guys. So I, I wanted to chat with you today a little bit about what's going on here at the Spearco Homestead. One thing that Dorothy and I finally pulled the trigger on is some remodeling work on the home. Some of you that follow me, especially personally on uh, Facebook, may have seen some inklings of this. I'm watching two gentlemen right now wrestle a giant beam through my window uh, that will soon be holding up a, uh, a great big roof. Uh, I've got a major outdoor kitchen and really more like an outdoor porch room that is uh, soon to be a reality here. And uh, this was something a long time coming. And it's part of, I think, Dorothy and I trying to decide, like, we want, how do we want to live and how do we want things to be for us and for our grandchildren? And we've kind of made the decision that, you know, instead of being a commercial operation, we want to go to being homesteaders again, which is what we always were until we moved here. And, and frankly, Dorothy wanted something to do. And we built the commercial component of this because she wanted something to do. She wanted to contribute uh, some, in some way financially to the, to the operation. But more than that, she wanted something that was hers and not mine that she's kind of involved with. And you can understand that. Well, now that she's got our grandkids every day, that's hers, you know, and she, she's the one that does all that work. I love having them and all, but she's the one that's changing diapers and dealing with them, you know, our granddaughter from eight o'clock in the morning till, you know, near six o'clock at night every day. Well, when you got a kid that's not even two years old yet, that's a full-time job. And then you throw the grandson in there and go and pick him up from school. And so we want to go back to kind of just be able to enjoy that. And we want to be able to travel again uh, more easily. And so we've made this decision to get rid of the ducks. And we've also made this decision to take some of the money that we've made and we've put aside and we've saved and be good little ants with and say, let's make our, let's make our outdoor kitchen that we've always dreamed of owning. And uh, we got that going. And now I'll probably throw out some video to kind of give you an idea of how that's going to look today. Uh, but it's going to be pretty awesome. It's going to be like an outdoor room, and it'll be great for the fall workshops. That's why we're not doing two workshops a year anymore. We make money on them. We have a lot of fun with them. But, you know, if we do one a year, we put just full court press effort into it. And the reason I'm telling you guys all this is because I think some of you may have done what I did, which is not maybe bitten off more than you could chew, but after chewing it for a while, maybe it's more than you want to chew. And I think it's okay to then pull back and say, hey, I'm not – I'm not going to do this anymore. And I think many of you, like me, have gone into content creation and you have YouTube channels and stuff like that. And you start to feel you know, like you owe your base to keep doing this stuff. And what you, you owe your base is to be honest about where you want to be and to try to get there and to chronicle your journey, including saying, we walked this path a long time. I'm glad there's those of you that learned it. It is a good path, but it is not for us in our life at this point anymore. So that's what we're doing now. The question that kind of spurred this little talk here at the end is a bunch of people asked, how are you going to handle the property now? Fertility, pest control, weeds, 
grass. How are we going to do that? Well, number one, we have a riding lawnmower, and it's only a three-acre property, and I've laid things out, and once the ducks go, a lot of the short fencing and stuff like that we put in the paddock them is going to go too. And that'll make mowing the place really quick and really easy. It won't be difficult at all. So, you know, I'll have to mow a few times a year. Big deal. Uh, as far as pests, you know, we are going to put in, I'm waiting on a shipment from a place called Sand Mountain Herbs. I'm going to put in, you know, honestly thousands of different perennial herbs this year uh, with different flowers and things like that to really build up the predator insect population, which is already pretty daggone good. Um, we do most of our gardening in wicking bed type arrangements. So it's a lot easier to control pests when you're managing individual beds. Soil is always perfect. Moisture content always perfect. You can use simple organic pest control methods like, you know, garlic pepper tea and things like that. We'll continue our spraying program that we've always used for our fruit trees and what have you. And we will have animals in the system, just not, you know, out and about. We are probably going to pick up some chickens that are capable of producing meat chickens on our own. We, I've looked at Dixie Rainbows. I haven't decided what yet. We have the wonderful little Bantam chickens. They do a good job of processing some of our compost for us and you know, uh, being broody and taking care of eggs and, and hatching eggs. So where we keep the ducks now, we may go to a situation where we keep you know half a dozen chickens there. That's just for our personal eggs. Um, we'll get a heavy breed. We'll clip wings. We'll do whatever we have to, but they ain't coming out. It's going to be a coop and run situation. I don't care if Paul Wheaton likes it or not. I don't build my life around what Paul Wheaton likes. Um, and that will give us another source of composting. So we'll be able to take all of our clippings, all of our leftovers, etc., and between the two groups of chickens have plenty of compost as a fertility aid wherever we need it. I also have a facility less than two miles from, or I'd say less than four miles from here where I can get commercially available compost for, it's like 45 bucks for a two cubic yard load. And since I go there a lot, and they, they, the guy that loads my truck, it ain't two yards when he's done. I, I don't think you can quite get three yards in my truck with the toolbox back there, but he gets damn close to two and a half, two and three quarter yards. He really rambos that stuff in there for me. Uh, so that's, you know, that's plenty of fertility. Uh, building up the predator insect population, that's how we're going to handle this, the way that everybody else does. You know, the way that everybody else does. And I probably, you know, I haven't decided yet on the chicken thing. I may run, you know, one run of meat chickens a year, and I can run them strategically wherever I want them to go. I've got a processor that processes them for four bucks. I could do two or three, and as long as I decide to do them when it's convenient for me so that I know we want to go on vacation, for instance, in early June, so I will not start a chicken run that either doesn't finish before there or begin after there so that it's not in the way of our vacation. So we're just rearranging our lives, and it's not really a big deal, except that we've built so much around the duck here at, at Nine Mile Farm. And uh, I look at you know the Muscovies, and I think, well, I could keep a small group of Muscovies. They fly and they eat everything. You know, I, I, and I, I don't want, I, here's what I don't want to do. I actually don't mind keeping ducks, just like chickens, in some kind of coop-and-run environment, but not my ducks. My ducks are going to go somewhere where they can continue to roam on empty spaces. 
and open spaces because they've grown up that way. I think there's a big difference in taking an animal that it comes out of an egg and it goes into a coop and run or a tractor environment and it doesn't never know anything else and taking one that has been ranged, you know, pretty much a free-range paddock shift animal and retrofitting it back. It's I don't want to do that to the animal. Here's the good news. These contractors that are doing all my work for me, one guy's going to buy 20 ducks and the other guy might buy as many as 20 ducks and that's a huge offload right there and the other guy wants to buy my group of six geese uh so we're already without trying well on the way to duck liquidation but the big thing if you need to make a change in your life even if it seems quite radical even if others are watching that might you might wonder what do they think of it if it's the right thing to do for you and your family make the change Every day you live doing something you really don't want to do, especially when you don't have to. I'm not talking about holding a job you don't want for a couple more weeks or a couple more years until you get through something. I'm talking about something you could change tomorrow if you if you just chose to, but you choose not to. Every day you do that's wasted. Every day you do that, you're not making the most of your dash. So hopefully that's a good little little anchor point for me today. I want to remind you guys one of the ways you can help support us by doing your online shopping at a little microsite on my main website called tspaz.com. If you like the show, if you think it's worth supporting, when you're to shop online, just go to tspaz.com first. You can pretty much buy what you were going to buy anyway and still support us. And you can also see all of my reviews on Amazon when you go to tspaz. Today I'm bringing an item around that I have been recommending for almost nine years now. It is the Stream, Streamlight Stylus Pro Flashlight. Uh, I'm almost no, never anywhere without my Streamlight Stylus Pro Flashlight. And when I am, it's because I've just met somebody and I've gifted it. I've gifted probably 50 of these things over the last 10 years. Uh, they're, they're about 20 bucks. Um, they are a pen light. They use AAA batteries and uh, a little thumb control. They're very bright. They're very reliable. They're a great size. They're usable if you if you're trained with the concept of Kubaton, you can use one as a Kubaton quite effectively. Um, but they're just a great light. And uh, my big reasoning behind recommending these is EDC is everyday carry. I know that's like everybody knows it's EDC, but it's not MDC, which would be most day carry, or SDC, someday carry. And I find that the smaller, the more compact, the more convenient your gear is, the, best, the less you feel like Batman with a freaking utility belt, the more likely that your EDC will actually be EDC, as in everyday, all-the-time carry. And the Streamlight is so narrow that if you tuck that, if you wear you know tactical pants, jeans, whatever, left pocket all the way in the back corner clipped, You'll forget it's there until you need it, which at what point you'll go, up oh, there it is, and you'll reach down and you'll grab it and it'll be there. It is, again, my favorite little light for the price. There are better lights, uh, but I don't have to sell a kidney to buy one of these, and they're just a great way to spread prepping because no one looks at a little tactical flashlight like this and goes, oh, my God, you're a doomsday prepper. They go, gee, I'm glad we can see where we're going now. Where'd you get that? So it is a good way to start to instill... Not only preparedness, but just self-reliance. Because that's really what we're teaching is self-reliance. So check it out. It's at tspaz.com or just go to survivalpodcast.com and scroll down a little bit below today's episode and you'll see my review of the Streamlight Stylus Pro. And of course, absolutely of course, 
You can find everything you're looking for at T-Spaz. And all my reviews are itemized now so you can go through and see cooking and tactical and EDC and all that stuff. Anyway, let's go on with our song of the day today. We have God and Guns from Leonard Skinner. And this did come out right at the time that Barack Obama made his famous comment about they cling to their religion and their guns with why he was having some problems with getting things the way he wanted them. And, uh, I, I, you know, this song very much comes from a evangelical Christian-type standpoint, sediment. And that is the group of people that Barack Obama was talking about when he dismissed them and talked about them like they were kind of shit, basically. And that's, you can try to paint it another way, but that comment was pretty much these ignorant ass Southerners and these ignorant ass rednecks are so, they have their Bible up their ass so much and they're so concerned about their guns, they won't listen to logic and reason. That's, that's how the, the, you know, the, the type of liberal that Barack Obama is thinks about the everyday man. And I'm not your Bible-believing Christian. I'm a deist, meaning I believe in some form of higher power for its cause, but I don't practice organized religion. But I still love this song. And if you read the song facts about it from Leonard Skinner, you'll find out that they feel that it doesn't matter who you're praying to, that you should be able to pray whoever the hell you want to. And that was the real rub of the wrong direction about the religion comment from Barack Obama, because, of course, everybody else's religion's okay in the eyes of the liberal. Only the Christian is the problem. And this is, it, it, it harkens back to what I've tried to explain to so many people in the, in the liberty movement that just don't seem like they get liberty. I'm in the liberty movement, but I don't want liberty for everybody, just for my kind of people. And, and you, you cannot defend liberty for anyone unless you defend liberty for everyone and be genuine and actually mean liberty. Liberty doesn't mean having things the way you want them. Liberty means having the freedom to pursue things the way that you wish to, so long as you don't impair the, the freedom and liberty of someone else to, to, to pursue things they wish to. So that means if the, 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 there's a group of people over here that are not of the same sexual affiliation, not of the same religion, not of the same belief system, they don't like guns, they, they, you know, they want to smoke pot, whatever it is, and if you're opposed to that, so what? You should be for their rights and their freedoms as much as your own. Because without that, you have nothing. You can either build the society on the fundamentals of individual rights and the principles of non-aggression or some group or groups will be oppressed and it is only a matter of time in the Russian roulette that that is before the chamber falls on your group. That's how I take it. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life at times you tough or even if they don't. Talking about his brand new mission Lacked his plans but they came undone When it got around to God and guns I don't know how he grew up But it sure wasn't down at the hunting club Cause if it was he'd understand Just a little bit more about the working man God and guns 
Was fine.